Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jeff Bachman, making my debuts on this channel, so thank you all for listening. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Benjamin Michis about his new book, The Politics of Annihilation, A Genealogy of Genocide. This is really a remarkable book that I look forward to discussing with our guest on today's show. Ben Michis, welcome to the show. Ben, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm uh, currently assistant professor of security studies and conflict resolution at the University of Washington at Tacoma. Um, I'm originally from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I completed my undergraduate work at Whitman College and uh, my doctorate at Johns Hopkins University. Great. And how did you become interested in studying genocide? You know, when I entered grad school, I thought that I was going to write a project that was about the post-war foundations of um, international humanitarian law. And when I started that project, I actually got curious because I was reading the documentation of Raphael Lemkin, um, an access rule in occupied Europe. And it struck me as a real curiosity that even though um, genocide seemed like it was Uh, a significant political concept, one that was widely identified by humanitarian and other audiences, that it was so startlingly new, Um, like it was only 75 years old or 70 years old at that point in time. And and that kind of puzzled me. And I think that I took a detour early on in the project to try to learn more about the evolution of that particular term. And it kind of grew into a much broader project. Um, But the underlying interest in trying to think about um, what forms of mass violence are understood and recognized and combated by the international community was probably there from the beginning. It was sort of my aspiration um, to focus on that project. I think that uh, a lot can be said about uh, society and its ethics on the basis of the way that it um, takes care of people's suffering. And this seems like sort of the most gratuitous example of that. If that makes sense. Sure, definitely. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I want to get you know a question to you about uh, your interest maybe in armed conflict and genocide and where they those interests might overlap. Um, but before we get to that, uh, did you have a mentor as you were um, you know transitioning to the study of genocide? I worked with one person in particular who was kind of an expert on post-colonial readings of international law, which was Siba Grovagi, who was at that time at Johns Hopkins University. He's now um, in the Africana Studies Center and Department of Political Science at Cornell University. Um, I also worked uh, with uh, Dr. Bill Connolly and um, Dr. Jennifer Culbert, who works on the death penalty um, domestically, but uh, we're both um, political theorists who are concerned about violence and fascism. And so transitioning to, to the book, uh, how did you come to write this book? And, and also, how did you come to write this book the way that you wrote it? Well, um, I, I can start with the first one of those questions, and maybe I'll ask you for a little clarification about the second. So uh, this book was the, the dissertation project. And as I said just a minute ago, um, I was interested in the kind of newness of the concept of genocide, um, why uh, these particular 
terms and and figures and uh, ways of thinking about mass violence had become prominent in about that history. And like a lot of people, I'm sure I'd been kind of introduced before to humanitarian intervention in the context of globalization and human rights discussions, you know, Samantha Power, those kinds of works before. Um, but it was in the process of digging through um, some of the, the travel preparatoire for the Genocide Convention, um, reading Lemkin's uh, own texts, you know, first kind of the stuff that uh, Donnelly Fries and, and people like Stephen Jacobs have done to um, unearth and, and popularize that and then later further work. I thought it, it was just incredibly curious, um, you know, to draw a kind of point of contrast, for instance, I really like um, Douglas Irvin Erickson's book, the 2017 work on Raphael Lemkin, but I was also um, somebody who was also training in political theory at the same time. And I decided I wasn't going to write a book that was exactly uh, a kind of history of, of Lemkin as an intellectual or the concept in a kind of chronological fashion, but more trying to understand what the different theoretical parts of the concept were doing, why people had latched onto them over time, and how the concept was different or the discourse was different in its sort of first iterations from where it had ultimately developed. Um, so that was, a, a, you know, a multi-year process of kind of reading and learning and figuring things out and trying different different avenues. Um, I've been in my kind of theoretical work really influenced um, probably by two or three thinkers. Uh, Michel Foucault, who's obviously written a tremendous amount on, on genealogy and archaeology and the importance of discourse, um, but also Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's work on assemblage theory, which is a different approach to understanding um, the sort of construction of the social world, one that uh, affords material objects and processes a lot more potency than traditional social theory has. And then lastly, um, Kathleen Malibu's work on plasticity, uh, which is a way of understanding the power of f- form rather than substance. And it really helped me kind of interpret genocide along a slightly different lens uh, than I think other people have uh, up to this point. But I was going to ask you then when you said, well, how did I, I write the kind of project out? What, what did you mean by that? Sure. So um, Foucault picks up on this term. It kind of connects to the last bit that you were talking about there. So I was interested in the method of your research. And so you mentioned genealogy, assemblage, and plasticity. Can can you explain to our audience uh, what those means in terms of your research? Um, And he has a bunch of sort of methodological notes. It's a term that he actually steals from Frederick Nietzsche. And to just be as brief as possible about it, it's a way of thinking through history that allows for discontinuities and interruptions in a way that classical histories often don't. And in particular, it doesn't allow or start with a single point of origin, but rather a series of competing forces. Um, It kind of showcases the contingency of any series of of, um, developments over time. Um, And as a consequence, it uses a little bit of a different way of thinking about chronology. Um, Foucault uses the term epistem, for instance, to, to refer to a block where a certain set of um, terms or understandings become sensible. And one of the things that I tried to, to develop in this book is that even though there's only been, say, 75 years of people really using the term genocide, that there are quite different epistems already built into the concept. Um, I think there's one sort of uh, that's budding and being debated and competed around in the formation of the Genocide Convention. There's probably another turn some point in the 70s and the 80s, and, and still even potentially a, a newer concept now um, in the past couple of decades, although it's not quite that clearly spelled out in terms of, of the timeline. Um, so Foucault helped me try to think about what was going on in terms of the movement of ideas um, in a way that was a little bit different than the classical reading of the concept or the debate, like the contestable concepts debate that we have in genocide studies, where um, 
terms are, are kind of taken in a static way where we don't think that they've historically shifted. Um, and one of the kind of key insights is that even though uh, people might be using the same language, they might actually be speaking almost entirely different languages. And I, I think that that was a real key in terms of kind of unpacking elements of what was at stake in genocide. Um, it, assemblage theory is, uh, I guess, a growing part of a focus on materialism and materiality against the kind of social constructionist turn that's been powerful in the social sciences for the past couple of decades. Um, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, in a book called A Thousand Plateaus, outlined that uh, sort of uh, all ontology is based off a series of um, machines that combine and interact with one another in different ways. And often they can refer to things that are um, as simple as a house, which requires materials and people and bacteria and all other kinds and wind flows and air pressures in order to be able to make it work. Um, but they also pay attention, interestingly enough, to, to language. So they, they focus on what are called incorporeal transformations. And what they mean by that is the way in which specific uses of language have material effects that we can register. Sometimes these are also called Cambridge changes. Um, so the example that's very classical is that the, the material body, if we were to study it, of a person accused of a crime is no difference between them being declared innocent or guilty by a judge. And yet the pronouncement, the statement of one of those two words has a profound impact on the course of that person's life. And so they're trying to figure out how does all of the different factors that would lead to the power of that one person's declaration actually work? Because a sort of, you know, an, an alien coming from nowhere and looking at that situation might go, this is really weird. We have, you know, two large mammals that are simply interacting. And because one says one thing, all of a sudden we have these cascading series of effects. So assemblage theory provided me with a different lens to try to read through um, what kind of the elements were of the concept of genocide in a way I don't think that other people have taken this seriously. So in the book, I try to unpack kind of four different components of the concept, um, those being group and identity, um, destruction and violence, what I call the parts whole distinction or a neurological distinction, and then intent and desire, which is um, something I think you see iterated out in many different discussions around genocide, but not made explicit. And the other piece that assemblage theory helped me to, to kind of work through is the way in which then the concept actually becomes a materially powerful um, element of particular social context. So in, the con in, in an area like genocide prevention, for instance, um, the appearance of genocide, unlike other terms, sort of supercharges the desire that people have to be able to respond to one particular epoch or instance of suffering. And so we had to kind of note and think through that effect. Um, the last character there, Mal Malibu, is, is sort of a, a newer, or for me, a, a newer resource to think through. But I think that her model of plasticity um, is to reinterpret form um, as, and like here we're talking form versus content, um, as a, a sort of potent ontological artifact. She thinks that um, in anything that is plastic has the capacity to both be formed in the hard sense. So we're accustomed to thinking about plastic in that way, like plastic water bottles. Um, but something that's plastic is also formative and transforming over time. And what the real kind of connection here for me was, is that it, at stake in the concept of genocide is an interest in the form that violence takes. And here we can think about like form in terms of what groups are subjected to violence. So if we just take a random aggregate of people and we committed one act of violence against them, that would be probably a crime against humanity. But if they had a particular type of identity, that imposition of form is sufficient to make it potentially a charge of genocide. I mean, there'd be a lot of other circumstances there. And so I started thinking about, okay, why are we interested in form um, in this way? And, and what are the stakes of kind of uh, 
building an entire model on, on specific kinds of forms. And her work just kind of unpacks some of that for me. Hope that answers the question. <laughs> it does. It does. Thanks, Ben. Um, something you said about like, the common language, I wanted to come back to that because I think it does connect to what you talk about as the hegemonic understanding of genocide. Um, it's interesting in, I think, human rights literature um, and genocide studies, or maybe at the activist side, they talk about how um, you know, the development of human rights law and concept of genocide and the, you know, the genocide convention gives people a common language with which to talk about, uh, human suffering, their own plights, uh, what people are dealing with. Um, but common language does not necessarily mean same meaning, right? So you use the same words, but if they mean different things to different people, um, then you could have some, uh, conflict or headbutting there. So I, I think about, I was thinking about this in terms of the hegemonic understanding, um, that even if there are different meanings, some meanings may be more accepted or become um, sort of the norm uh, within uh, the international community or activists or whatever, you know, whatever the case might be. So um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this idea of the hegemonic understanding of genocide. Yeah, so in the book, I came up with this term to try to crystallize um, one of the the major changes, I think, uh, in genocide discourse in the past, say, four decades, but also to, to describe it as, as an, an obstacle on the one hand and as something that enables politics on the other. And I'll try to clarify. So in the book, I call it a form of discursive practice. And by this, I mean, um, it's not just one definition of genocide, right? Say the, the UN Genocide Convention's definition that is the hegemonic understanding of genocide. Um, it's rather the set of assumptions or implicit presuppositions that people use when they talk about genocide so that it's a self-evident concept that it's supposed to kind of have immediate political implications, and that most of its components, whenever we're talking about it, fall into pretty dominant representations or social imaginaries, right? So we're not going to have to dig into the complexities, for instance, of whether or not the Basarwa and Botswana are in fact a group that um, should appear and could be subject to genocide. They just kind of always already are. And um, what I wanted to, to tease out there is that I think when we're talking about the common language that people discuss, you know, in human rights literature and literature on mass atrocity and genocide, um, a lot of that is assuming the hegemonic understanding of genocide in the background. So, for instance, if you read, I think, somebody like, and I mentioned Samantha Power earlier, um, a lot of the work that, that is done to sort of popularize this and say, OK, we all need to get behind the agenda of, of ending mass violence is a particular set of assumptions about what that violence looks like and which episodes we should care about. And actually, like your work, you have this beautiful piece of writing on the, the uh, statistics of genocide publication that I hope gets published someday soon, um, kind of showed out some of this, right? So very few people would contest, for instance, that the Nazi genocide, the Rwandan genocide, or the Armenian genocide are cases of genocide, although obviously we could get into Turkey as another set of, of questions there. Um, but those more marginal and peripheral cases are where a lot more conflict comes in in terms of the competing interpretations that you're describing. And what I see as hegemonic is the gesture of saying, uh, no, only some of these really count because of, um, and then insert your background assumptions here. And you can actually detect this in a lot of different places and ways in genocide studies and the way that activists use it. I'll just use a couple of examples that are both present in the book. Um, so for instance, um, William Shavas has got this great work, um, Genocide and International Law, which is probably the best volume and kind of explaining all of the different uh, court cases uh, that have surrounded um, the genocide interpretation and how the tribal preparatoire has been used. It's a fabulous work. Um, but there's one point in it where he 
comes along to try to explain why the genocide convention's definition makes sense. And he actually says, well, we have to use these background assumptions to interpret the language, and then it kind of works out, works out correctly. And that, that we have to assume these background assumptions is the part that I want to foreground, not because it's intrinsically problematic. Those assumptions may be good. They may enable specific kinds of productive political action, but they may also have exclusions, limitations kind of built into them. And that's what needs to, to kind of be brought up. Another example that I'll, I'll pull out, and it's a, from a totally different context, but it's another instance where kind of the hegemony is present, is this really interesting case from the mid-90s with Schindler's List and Steven Spielberg at this Oakland high school. And I can't remember the name of the high school off the top of my head. It was a crisis in California for a little while because a class of junior high school students in Oakland were taken to uh, go and see Schindler's List in this way that was, you know, using Schindler's List as a, a means to teach about genocide and the Holocaust. And one of the kids snickered in the middle of the film, and it became kind of a local media event. You know, how do these kids are so out of touch? And they actually brought in Spielberg and the governor of California at the time to lecture the students in this high school about their lack of sensitivity and their failure of suffering. And it turns out that the students that they're lecturing are coming from largely indigenous communities. They're coming from black communities. So there's immediate kind of visceral experiences of racism and also a background potentially of genocide and mass violence there as well. And yet there was this assumption that somehow Spielberg's work was intrinsically going to have a, a better sense of what genocide was actually about because it fit our stereotypes. And so there was like these castigating of 14 year olds when, you know, we don't really know the circumstances behind why a 14 year old was laughing in the theater, right? They could have been telling a joke to their friend, whether or not that's appropriate or not seems really disproportionate to the reaction. And so I think you can see kind of the hegemony of one understanding being used against another experience um, pretty directly there in a way that should strike us as odd because most of the time, 14 year olds laughter doesn't actually constitute a major media event. Right. It's easy to uh, assume that the laughter was at the film or uh, if you're sitting on the subway and a kid laughs, you might think you're laughing at you for some reason when it could be something completely or just telling the work to their friend or whatever it is at that point right. in time. Right. Um, so the, the hegemonic understanding, how did it become hegemonic? And, and maybe a related question would be, you know, there's different fields, right? There's this field of politics and there's the influence that politics have over the understanding of genocide. And then there's the, the legal part, but then there's also the scholarship part, right? So do these three things interact in some ways? Uh, and one of the I guess a reason I asked this question, or at least one reason, is um, it always sort of perplexes me that the hegemonic understanding is um, reproduced in scholarship or some scholarship over and over again. And I just wonder why scholars are not more willing to move outside of that hegemonic understanding in their research. Uh, So I don't know if that's a loaded question, but... So I, I think that there are a number of really key moments in each one of those communities that need to be kind of starred and their relationship with one another is important, but there's also some divergences there. Um, And those are important to note as well. So obviously we've got this kind of somewhat clear story about the genocide convention, the obstacles that it faced, the difficulty of the the various kind of great powers and taking it seriously and all of the editing down from Raphael Lemkin's sort of initial formulations of genocide, which were um, much more expansive along multiple lines. And that's a really important moment um, that a lot of people have called attention to. And I think that 
Um, we're learning more and more about the, the different reasons why that became complicated from, you know, Alexis Stiller and Anton Van Weiss and other people that are, are historians of that period that, that do really fine work. Um, I think that actually, though, the hegemonic understanding of genocide is consolidated in my mind at a much later point in time. Um, and it's a, partly a consequence of the work that happened in that period, um, but partly not. So I actually think that it's a series of scholars that start writing in the 1970s that is a pretty important moment for the academic community, kind of that first generation of genocide scholars, where um, genocide becomes important for castigating a number or describing or analyzing as well, a number of different acts of essentially heavy-handed state violence, right? So we've got um, communism and the massacres under Stalin and massacres under you know the cultural revolution that are criticized on the one hand. We've got kind of the formation of a left critique of the Vietnam era violence, right? There's like the, the Russell tribunals of the United States that embraced the language of genocide in really particular ways. And it starts to trickle in at that stage and I think that there's a little bit of an uncritical reading of what genocide is at that moment, um, and one that certainly has an amnesia with respect to how much dispute there was in the 1940s around the setting with the terms of that. And I think that part of the hegemony or the desire for there to be a hegemonic understanding comes from the fact that scholars in that period really wanted to change the way that they saw mass violence occurring and they saw warfare occurring. And so they're you know very, very much willing to seize on to the moral dimension and the moral urgency surrounding that term and try to build it up into one thing. And I think that that, that instinct actually is a really important one because it's part of what um, helps to politicize things. But it also then leads to a problem where all of these other issues come up in the way that you define and you think about something that, that you know, you've excluded other experiences and led to marginalization and invis- invisibilization and other effects like that. So that's one moment. And I think that genocide studies has over the past, say, 40 years, you know, both worked itself into being a, a field as, insofar as it exists. And um, it, it has tried to play with those limits and to contest them in different ways. And there's lots of important work. The contestable concepts paradigm or the discussion of that in the past two decades is probably the, the richest point of clash. There's a lot more um, that's subterranean, but you can see elements of that going back to Tony Barta and before that, that are saying we need different conceptions of how this process puts out. That's one kind of strand. And I, I think that part of the reason that the, the desire for it to be hegemonic is still there is because that community very much wants to influence the way that genocide intervention and genocide prevention efforts occur. And there's this assumption that if it stands out morally in this way, and if it's self-evident in this way, that that for some reason will induce political changes. And what's odd to me a little bit as somebody who studies international relations is that the, the obstacles geopolitically to intervention are in certain way much more complex than the study of why mass violence itself occurs in some sense. Um, and so I think that there's some um, lack of attentiveness to the actual function of using the language. And so maybe that, that's one of the things we could tease out or discuss further about the hegemonic understanding. With respect to politics and law, um, again, I think you, you have a, a resurgence of interest in the concept in the 80s and the 90s. And obviously, there, the, those are in reference to events in, in um, the former Yugoslavia and in, in Rwanda. And there, I think you can see that there's some dissonance between what the Genocide Convention and the Travel Provatoire say about genocide and the way that the courts then pick it up and the international dialogue and legal dialogue start. And um, I think some of that, again, is strategic in efforts to try to confront new problems as they've emerged. And part of that also is reading a term, kind of inheriting a, a 
very, at that point, you know, small scale dialogue about what the substance of genocide is, and then importing some of those assumptions as well. And having a little bit of a back and forth with scholars. Politically, it seems like the term has picked up um, really substantially only in the past, I would say, two or three decades. And here's what's kind of interesting to me. I think it coincides with the human rights moment. And I've relied a little bit in the book on Sam Moyne's work on the development of human rights. And Moyne makes an interesting case that human rights as a, a kind of term that what he ter- calls the last utopia is really a 1970s, 1980s development. And the point he makes is that um, kind of the grand democratic capitalist vision and the grand um, communist vision had both sort of failed to provide the sorts of improvement globally that um, everyone had interpreted. And human rights becomes a discourse of last resort, where it's the most minimal set of expectations that we should get in terms of freedom and non-harassment from the state. And so everyone can kind of seize onto that in the decline of these two competing visions. Um, and I actually think that it's at that stage that Politically, there's this need to sort of reinvent genocide as the most extreme of any kind of human rights violations. And so it sort of gets rebranded, whereas we know there was conflict with Lemkin in the 40s and the human rights movement, and those were not totally coherent agendas. They're they're almost, if you will, separate ways of thinking about it advancing um, a kind of international justice model. And so I think it's at that stage also that 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 anchor comes together and genocide really becomes like the pinnacle um, event that we all need to pay attention to and that the hegemony gets underscored. And so you have kind of three different political strands all coalescing together and all emphasizing the importance of this concept without really um, ever thinking about some of the, the underside of, of uh, its hegemony. Right. And the yeah, there's a, a lot of... Uh... You know, contributions to the literature that talk about the importance of differentiating genocide from uh, war crimes, wars of aggression, other crimes against humanity, um, you know, most of it based on the uh, specific intent aspect when, you know, so genocide has been called the crime of crimes, but, uh, you know, during the Nuremberg tribunals, they also were talking about the, you know, aggressive war as the enabler of other crimes such as genocide. So it's it's interesting to see this move to make genocide um, sort of at the top of this hierarchy of, of international crimes, um, the you know the the hegemonic uh, understanding. Um, going back to what you were talking about about um, you know intervention, uh, how has the hegemonic understanding influenced the evolution and development of of institutions and norms around uh, the prevention of the crime? I think that the most obvious place, actually, that it does is, is in the kind of explosion or proliferation of both. Um, international government and NGO efforts at genocide prevention. Um, so I, th- and, and like, again, there's, there's both productive and problematic aspects to that. So, you know, if we take something like genocide watch, for instance, um, you know, Greg Stan has a lot of, of great essays, spot, spotlighted a tremendous number of important insights into mass violence. There's the, you know, the, the eight and the 10 stages scales that are really excellent tools for pedagogy. Um, but something that then happens in mapping the world in this way is that some of the assumptions about what types of identity, what forms of violence constitute genocide, get um, built into the pedagogy and into the advocacy, and then they kind of disappear, or they, they you know, filter into the background. And you can really see that the hegemony of the concept is necessary to launch that kind of platform. And again, that's for better and for worse. There are great um, efforts to expand and focus on mass violence in ways that um, didn't exist two decades ago, or didn't certainly exist four decades ago. And at the same time, there are um, problems that accrue with that in, in terms of who gets represented, how those representations are utilized, what forms of international power 
um, are legitimized or not. Um, and so I think that uh, that's just a single case where you can really see that hegemony coming to bear. The book uses a number of different case studies depending on the, and they're, they're very brief, uh, depending on the top part of the concept that we're talking about to sort of tease that out. Um, so it begins with an example, for instance, where there was a dispute about the status of the Basarwa um, or the San in, in Botswana, which are a nomadic group that got removed from the Central Kalahari Game Reserve. And there's a question of whether or not there was a, a kind of genocide there, or if in fact it was um, sort of too small or the group didn't quite fit, or if the state really intended, you know, all the, the traditional doubts. And a lot of the people who are concerned with the Basarwa um, are imploring and using a kind of hegemonic understanding of genocide to say, well, actually, this is not that. It's just a, it's a more minor human rights thing, even though, you know, if you look at the scales of the violence, it's still pretty significant. Um, sections of the work discuss some of the complexity of thinking about the Rwandan genocide in terms of um, group identity, which is a more well-known and well-established point, but it illustrated that, you know, sometimes the the conception that seems to be hegemonic is one of sort of a strong ethnic or racial conflict that maybe didn't map as well into those circumstances. And so it, it um, to some degree, undermined uh, our ability to think about what genocide prevention might look or genocide intervention might look like in the aftermath of, of the conflict there. Um, other cases include a, 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 the allegation by a group called Fidesima, which is a Brazilian NGO against the United Nations for their uh, spreading cholera in Haiti in 2010. Um, and uh, there they actually explicitly said that it was what they called an unintentional genocide, which, of course, is a nonsensical term from the vantage point of international law. So I tried to unpack what were they doing with um, the notion of an, a genocide without intent explicitly. Um, and then there's a few other cases from uh, the use of narcotics in the context of um, China and some of the discussions that went in the genocide convention there and about mass violence um, to uh I don't know, a myriad of other examples. When, when you mentioned that it's nonsensical, the unintentional, um, do you see a difference between uh, purposeful negligence, um, foreseeable knowledge, but unintentional? Uh, are, are these things really distinct or do they overlap in some ways, do you think? I think that the there are, so this is what the book tries to show, is that there are different understandings of the desires at stake that are both causal and morally important when we apply the language of genocide. And by that, I mean, in order to think about what produces an event of genocide, we have to have some underlying model of, of what the motors or the drives are behind, what the causal forces are. And uh, analytical scholarship tends to focus on that. It also, and, and this is in the political discourse in general and in, and in the, the scholarship, um, makes then moral or ethical claims on the basis of those causal causal desires. And I think that uh, depending, you can parse it different ways and get a, a sort of a, a broader or a narrower scope in terms of what events you're likely to create uh, or ca- call genocide. Um, I guess I'm, I'm interested in trying to think about what gets left out in each one of these circumstances. And so I'm, I'm open to the idea that purposeful negligence or, or willful ignorance or um, other terms along those lines need to be considered a little bit more carefully. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that in a lot of his writings, for instance, Lemkin, when he's coming up with the concept of genocide, doesn't talk a lot about the notion of intent very directly. Um, that's something that's added on during the travel repertoire, and it's, it's become important because that's part of how the law grounds and understands the stakes of moral agency. But again, if you're interested in assemblage thinking, like I am 
there's no such thing as an event of mass violence that is solely uh, the, the artifact of one person's plan or design or one person's execution, right? These are really tremendously complicated emergent events. And so um, they require a lot more care than that. And in scholarship, that's that's sort of easier for us to, to unpack to some extent. You know, we, we are good at seeing that. Um, in law, I think that's harder. And so we end up in this problem where we're not sure politically what we're supposed to do when we move forward with a concept that's more complicated, there's not sort of an easy kind of model about that. Um, whereas scholarship, we know that a long time. I mean, I think that um, Mark Levine's, you know, fantastic series, Genocide in the Age of the Nation State, um, begins essentially saying, you know, single monocausal explanations of the rise of genocide from uh, uh, the actions of a few men are not uh, adequate to understanding what's happening and the sort of isomorphic appearance of violence at different areas and parts of the globe. Um, so for me, that's that's where... Um, I, I guess I land on that. I think that those are potentially important terms. I see them as, to some extent, sidestepping the the complexity of the issue. And related to that, what would a or what does this? You mentioned a newer concept of genocide earlier in our conversation. Um, what does this newer concept look like, and is it taking into account some of the things that you've been talking about? Well, I think that there's been a, a lot in the scholarly community of work in new directions. Um, it, so again, I think contestable concepts, literature is a part of that. I think focusing and, and learning from complexity theory is a part of that. I think that trying to think a little bit along the lines of, of cybernetics and other new models um, is a part of that. Is it is it a complete break? I doubt it. Um, you know, I, every period of, of discourse is going to have a, a, hegemonic, a hegemonic interpretation that develops, but it seems like um, there's been some shift to thinking about this in new ways. Um, you know, the arena of cultural genocide or socially oriented techniques of genocide have uh, emerged or surfaced. I think that the late Claudia Card's efforts to think of genocide as a form of social death is really provocative and new. Um, and I think that those are all kind of um, moments where you can start to see a, a break or a movement away from um, the hegemony, at least in the arena of scholarship. In politics, more generally, there's a lot of different applications of genocide that are surfacing that are fascinating, right? So um, Amnesty International, for instance, in Brazil, has documents that discuss the possibility of a black genocide, which is a term that I think is uh, hard to, to um, reconcile with the ways that the hegemonic understanding uh, tends to deal or, or think about genocide. Um, and there it's from police violence as a result of the state. Um, climate activists have been using you know genocide in new ways to describe the effects of the Anthropocene and the fact that there are island nations that are disappearing that are you know we sort of have um, explicit knowledge of and are not taking any action in order to pr- preserve anything in terms of national identity. Um, I examined in the book briefly the case of people who are opposed to the industrial slaughter of meat as another case where um, you see a, a kind of effort to apply genocide, not just, I think, to get attention, but actually because they're um, thinking more critically about what is the, the form or the type of violence that's at stake there. And what's interesting to, to me about that case is you can find everyday activists turning to that vocabulary, but also somebody like um, Jacques Derrida, who is a, you know, a major figure in 20th century philosophy used that term in that particular context in, in um, evocative ways. And so I see those less as sort of a coalescence around a new definition of genocide or a new understanding of genocide that is people that are using the language out of some degree of frustration and resistance to the hegemony of the, the hegemonic understanding of genocide. I did want to return to the, to, to the question of intervention um, and 
you know, changing in how uh, some groups are using the term. Uh, in some ways, I think can connect to something you talked about in your book about um, the sort of institutional responses to genocide um, versus local um, preventive measures. Um, and in this context, you, at least my perception is that you express some concern about the humanitarianization of armed conflict for genocide prevention. Um, and if this is accurate, why do you have these concerns? Uh, and do these concerns connect in any ways to your thinking about uh, the concept or the norm of the responsibility to protect? Uh, and then finally, and I can you know, um, you know, bring this back up after the first question or two there, um, but how do these things interfere with local preventive measures? Sure. So I, the, to, to answer the close to, to final, the penultimate question there, um, I think the responsibility to protect is part of uh, a series of changes that are worth noting in the context of atrocity prevention or genocide prevention, in which um, armed conflict has become a tool of humanitarian efforts and been reframed in new ways. Although I don't think that the R2P is the the case that I think is the most interesting or problematic along those lines. For me, that's more like the mass atrocity response operation reports uh, that came out, I think, in 2010 or 2011. Um, and some of the, the discussion of shifts in governance that um, that kind of documentation entails. And I guess my underlying concern here, and I think in the book, I quote, Sir Hartley Shawcross is saying war is the only way to solve genocide. Or I can't remember the exact quote off the top of my head or something like that, but he, he mentions that in the midst of um, one of the dialogues in the ad hoc committee. Um, and uh, I think that that's sort of what the international community has realized is that we need sort of a full menu or a full spectrum series of tools, including armed conflict. And the prospect of armed conflict here alone is not necessarily what bothers me. It's not that I, I don't think that there should be potentially struggle in order to prevent genocide from occurring. It's the way in which that epistemology gets, the epistemology surrounding genocide prevention gets couched and used in the broader context of changes in, in armed conflict. And what I mean by that is that um, genocide prevention often in those documents is, is sort of looked at as a tragic or hopeless task. So we don't really have the tools to adequately and fully predict where, armed, or where genocide will emerge from. We know that it will happen. We know a lot of factors and conditions and variables that are part of it. And yet that very failure, the inability to make kind of a, a predictive diagnosis that's fully accurate is the reason why we need more and more tools to go after it. And what I think is at stake there to some extent is the ability to manage um, life and, and populations at the level of their maturity and their level of their well-being. And I think you can see this in the responsibility to protect very clearly, right? There's a redefinition away from juridical sovereignty to um, concern for the welfare of populations and their responsibility being part of the state task. There's that one example of that redefinition. Um, in, in documents like Morrow, though, it's it's much more transparent that that's what's at stake, that um, what we need to be contemplating is a way to execute an armed conflict or execute an intervention, if short of armed conflict, that would be successfully you know, inhibiting the perpetrators of genocide from ever kind of getting to their victims. And in doing so, um, we may or may not need to sort of redefine the political circumstances and conditions that people have been in for a long time. And I'm not the first voice by any stretch that's kind of been skeptical of that claim. I mean, Mahmoud Mandani is probably the best um, or most outspoken or identifiable voice who's, who's been a little bit concerned about that process. The reason it, it scares me is that a lot of the critical security studies and critical military studies literature on armed conflict has noted that the past 
um, couple of decades with coin, with the transformation of war, have really seen um, war itself reinvented as a tool or a process of governance. And that the boundaries in terms of what you do, who you identify as an enemy, um, how uh, we are uh, going to use violence as a means of, of governing populations are all um, really kind of in flux in that period. You know, classical warfare has kind of gone away and we're not really sure what this new moment looks like, except that it, it has a tremendous amount of volatility. And if you read, again, some of the, the new uh, atrocity prevention res- you know, responses, they actually build that in. I think it's Morrow where there's there's three categories that they use, unlike traditional armed conflict, which would be you know just sort of offense, defense. You have um, perpetrators of violence, you have victims of violence, you have bystanders, and then they use this category called other or others, which is just uh, could be any of the other uh, categories. We don't really know who or what they'll, they'll do. And as a consequence, we're not sure how to react. And that seems to me like a, a scary way to kind of militarize potentially any or all aspects of um, a humanitarian crisis. What's comforting to me a little bit here is that I think of this not as something that is largely in execution, right? We haven't actually seen that many militarized humanitarian interventions. It's in the blueprint and thinking phase, right? It's, it's a discourse more than it is an actual substance. And so what I'm trying to do in the work is not to in any way call that like we need to step away from, from genocide prevention writ large or something sort of like humanitarian intervention is bad. I'm just simply trying to um, get or think through again what the effects of those assumptions are in terms of the development of policies and programs out of them and tease out what what's really at stake there in terms of power, in terms of ethics. Um, because as much as I think that some of the policymakers have, um, you know, for good effect, turned toward and been more concerned with genocide, I also think there are some downsides to the way that then um, they operationalize the hegemonic understanding of genocide. Um, does that answer the question? It does, it does. Uh, I mean, I think, um, you know, the hegemonic understanding in these types of scenarios also acts as um, – you know, an exclusionary divide between what are um, identified as uh, R2P type cases and then therefore also what are not included in R2P cases. So you mentioned uh, the case of, uh, you know, say if, if, there, if there's a black genocide, um, that's not really recognized as an R2P case. Uh, and, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's complicated, right? There's things like in a democracy, supposedly, you know, you have these channels, um, you know, to resolve these kinds of situations. And then therefore intervention might be seen as unnecessary or in quality cards, uh, theory of social death, um, or treatment of indigenous peoples. I, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think R2P cases end up being, or those that are identified as R2P cases are based on these tyrannical regimes or dictators or authoritarian governments that are seen as treating their people a certain way, uh, whereas the treatment of uh, peoples by democracies oftentimes are excluded from these. Uh, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on on any of that. Yeah, no, I, I'm in almost in complete agreement with you about that. I mean, I think that uh, R2P is, um, I think it reifies status quo power relationships more than anything else while shifting the grounds or the justification for intervention. In fact, I think that the material conditions in terms of um, who has power, who has military and sort of moral power um, are both uh, underlying exactly how those interventions will occur. Um, you know, it's kind of fascinating because we could talk about a number of cases like, you know, the, the black genocide case or indigenous genocide. Um, for me, what's, what's, interesting is how little patience sometimes the advocates for things like R2P have for 
hearing about the marginal cases that may or may not achieve recognition. Um, like I think that, for instance, some of Gareth Evans' work is is really troubling in terms of it, how it deals with or understands what a responsibility to protect if it were embraced truly involves, um, and you know how expansive that would be. And if it's a piecemeal effort that's going to you know face all the obstacles that we know um, with respect to, to you know intervention, armed intervention of any kind, then it seems like what it's primary principal effect is, is just reinstating again, those moral bad boundaries, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy in the international system. It doesn't then become the sort of international justice movement, which I think was behind both the human rights movement and the, the call to create a genocide convention initially, which is a much more expansive notion of the international sphere. Um, I think it entails lots more redistribution of, of power. I think it creates many more limits for the state which are probably antithetical to some of the tools that the R2P at least envisions as being part of the new humanitarian um, regime. So I, I have lots of issues with with um, the way that that doctrine has been iterated out, I would say. Which again does not mean um, backing away from uh, prevention of genocide, just uh, you know, taking a critical uh, lens to it. Um, you, the question you asked me earlier that we didn't get to was the, the issue of local efforts, right? And one of the problems with coalescing or crystallizing around this new norm and, and in saying, you know, we need to, to sort of link every effort of genocide prevention is that depending on um, the, the whatever the locality is, there are efforts that are going around. I mean, genocide is never an event without resistances, um, both in the, the uh, you know period of time when a mass violence is unfolding and in the aftermath to it. And so I think that the, the notion that um, we need to consolidate an international norm and use particular languages and get states to recognize um, you know, how how to abide by it, and if not, they need to have intervention, uh, potentially precludes those in serious ways. And, it, it, you know, there's always probably a balancing act here in terms of what's the best option. Um, but we also need to be cautious, I think, about deciding who's in uh, the position to make those decisions. And I think that a lot of, of the scholars... And the practitioners in, in humanitarian communities are. Um, I think that the advocacy, again, in, in its sort of the best faith reading of it is that it's hard to get this on anybody's agenda. And so promoting it always is an important thing to do and is, is value. Um, but at the same time, I think that there are some um, concrete things that can get undermined as a consequence of that. And I know I take an example here. So I'm situated in Tacoma, Washington, um, which is obviously, you know, part of the United States. It's a settler colonial state. Um, and the big or one of the big challenges here, for instance, involves federal recognition for the Duwamish because that's where Seattle lies. And that's the, the question of who would be acknowledged or not acknowledged there. And I, I think that if the R2P were to be turned, for instance, in, in a case like that, it would be very awkward in terms of how to think about what the the, the you know different actors would be what responsibility would look like, but it would also potentially not be welcomed um, by members of the Duwamish community who or people who recognize themselves as members of the Duwamish community because um, it would also feel like again external intervention in a way that would not be um, productive for them. And so I, I can see a lot of, of um, issues surfacing. Um, it's important, uh, you know, when dealing um, or approaching questions around justice for indigenous peoples, not to have the colonizer dictate the terms of what justice looks like. Um, and certainly, you can comment on on that if you want. But I also wanted to, as we you know begin to wrap up, um, have you gotten any feedback, responses uh, to your book from from other scholars in the field, and and 
um, you know, positive responses. I know the, you know, I wrote a review um, that hopefully will be pending publication. Uh, thank you before for the plug of my other research. Uh, and I did, of course, write a very positive um, review of your book. So, um, yeah, any, have you received any feedback and anything on the decolonization there? I, I haven't gotten a lot so far. You know, it's only been out a couple of months. So maybe that's, you know, the end of the school year or something like that. I, there's one other review that I've received that was also positive, but it wasn't written by somebody with a genocide studies background. Um, the, there's a blog called The Disorder of Things um, that focuses on kind of critical security and critical military studies that's run a symposium on it that's actually being in process today, I think is when the third piece goes up, where there's some scholars that have um, responded to it. Um, I'd say two or two of them or three of them are located in genocide studies or, or study mass violence in one form or another. Um, and they've had some positive things to say, especially about the, the kind of showing how the concept has informed or produced inequities over time that are important and probably taking that, you know, why is this case genocide in that case, not a discussion a bit further in terms of, of its evolution. In terms of the the sort of anti-colonial ambition of the work, I haven't received a lot of direct comment yet. So it'll be interesting to see what people have to say. Uh, and then so uh, the final question, or maybe the second to last question, um, who do you want to read this book? I, I mean, my review was written for a genocide journal, um, which you know is going to cater more towards genocide scholars. Um, so who's the audience that you are seeking with the, with the book? That's a great question. I was thinking about this actually just the other day because I, I had these other scholarly responses to it that I was reading and I, I was curious as to what people would respond to and react to and what they would like and wouldn't like and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so when I composed it and, I, you know, I emerged out of a dissertation project and dissertations are, are always a mess. You know, I think about them like they're like teddy bears, right? They're transitional objects. They've got bumps and bruises and all other kinds of stuff. And you get done and then you take some time to try to make it into a a piece. I tried to write it um, as accessibly as I could, given that some of the continental theory that's involved there is certainly um, not uh, probably likely accessible to a lay person and is not every social scientist or practitioner's cup of tea. But I wanted to to make the point clear. Um, My hope is that genocide scholars and practitioners would, er, er, practitioners, uh, prevention practitioners would read the book. Um, I also think, though, that part of it's directed at um, some of the disciplines that surround that. So political science, international relations, um, history, anthropology, sociology, potentially, um, because I think that it is a, a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary intervention. Um, and one of its primary stakes is just about how we conduct research and the assumptions that are involved in epistemology and the orientation that epistemology then has towards politics. Um, and if there's really kind of a, a very simple point at the at the heart of it, it's that um, no one has really had the concept of genocide along or around long enough to really understand what its concrete political effects are. Right? It's 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 nascent. It's new. Um, and so some of the, the latching onto it and the orientation has, I think, a lot of unintended consequences that need to be kind of figured out and considered. And that's, I think, more than anything, um, one of the key takeaways. Um, and, you know, who loses in the world of those unintended consequences? What do they develop and lead to um, is really a part of the key story of the book, as well as the fact that, you know, I, I'm not positive in the, the current moment which has witnessed the rise of a lot of xenophobic and nationalist regimes globally, um, if a model of liberal humanitarianism is going to make it through and have the kind of teeth that a lot of its advocates envision. Um, and there's even some scary things that, that have developed, right? So we've seen like the rise of hashtag white genocide, 
as a concept in the United States in ways that I don't think we would have predicted 10 years ago would have been picked up in the same way. And kind of conservative or reactionary um, deployments of this concept is a means to crystallize or coalesce social movements. And I think that all of that really has to be um, taken into consideration, give us some pause. Um, it reorient a little bit towards the concept as one that is about politicization first and foremost, and then has only as a secondary effect of that really led to institutional change and a little more care and consider for the former, um, even if the, the latter is still something we pursue and develop. Um, so that's a broad way. I mean, I, I think, I hope that the book is accessible to um, advanced undergraduates. I hope that people in multiple disciplines read it because I think it has important things to say about um, topics that all of them study in different ways. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I mean, at the end of my review, I did say I thought genocide scholars should read it because it, it made me think um, both introspectively and retrospectively about about genocide, but also my contributions to the litter and my own research. And I think getting to students might be a good uh, starting point also before they're really doing um, some of the heavier work in terms of research, as well as advocacy for prevention um, and other uh, means of stopping genocide and understanding genocide. So Ben, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before you go, uh, could you tell our audience one last thing, uh, a little bit about what you are currently working on? Sure. Uh, I, I have uh, two different big projects that I'm working on. Um, the first is actually uh, perhaps a little bit silly to, to casual observer. I'm actually working on non-human animals and their role in humanitarian intervention practices. So um, demining dogs, um, bovines uh, that produce milk that are used in emergency circumstances, things along that lines. Um, part of my into assemblage thinking is to try to, to understand um, all of the different agencies that are involved in making these practices possible. And we have lots of great studies on what humanitarian practitioners can do, um, but less so on their companions. And that's a, a shorter project, but it's one that's really intrigued me because I think that um, Actually, non-human animals show up in fascinating ways in humanitarianism, which is, of course, defined by human compassion and human interest. Um, so that was a, a just fascinating kind of side study that I developed. Um, the larger ambition is to look at, um, and the sort of second project is to look at some of the assemblage models and to diagnose or examine cases of mass violence more directly and to look at um, weapons and apparatuses that are used there. So here we're thinking about things like um, concentration camps, um, potentially death marches, the use of different kinds of weaponry. That's become a model that's been used in critical military studies, um, critical war studies, really effectively to try to tease out what shifts and what kind of paradigms are at stake there and what politically we can do about it. Um, and I don't think anyone's really taken that model exactly with the, the, in the context of, of genocide studies or mass violence. So that's what I'm hoping to kind of transition from. And for me, that's also getting away a little bit from concepts and ideas and discourses and into um, things much more directly. So that's kind of where I, I hope to go. But um, let me say thank you for, for having me and for spotlighting this work. Um, it's been a pleasure talking about it. And I'm happy to do so at any time, but it was also uh, a real honor. Great. Thanks, Ben. It was an honor having you on the show. This sound like great projects. Uh, thank you for being with us today. I, I really enjoyed it. And take care, Ben. Thanks. Thanks.